0: Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Last week, we launched into a new series here called Who's in Charge? And we've been using this image of a car with two steering wheels. And some of you saw in the email that we sent out last week, this kind of image came from an interaction I had with Olivia when I was coming home, bringing her home from daycare. And we had been up at the Air Museum at the airport and there's an airplane in there that you can climb up to and you can grab the the control yoke and you can turn it. And Olivia thought that it was so incredible that she could sit in the pilot seat and turn this control yoke and the one in front of me was turning too. And so I was explaining to her that this plane was used for training pilots. And so there'd be an instructor and a trainee And they could both fly fly the plane. And that even now on bigger planes that pilots work together in pairs. There's a pilot and a co-pilot and they work together to fly the plane. And then a little later we were coming home from daycare and she looks up and says, why does the car only have one steering wheel? Like why isn't there two like the plane? And so I'm trying to figure out how do I explain this to her? You know, if Nikki and I both had a steering wheel for the car we're probably not getting to the destination because we're going to have different ways of wanting to get there. You know, pilots, they work together. I'm not, you know, it's not a comment on our relationship. I'm not trying to say that. But there's this thing of of in a car, one person's in charge, one person's driving. And, you know, we have a term for the other people in the car. We call them backseat drivers when they try to interfere with the driver driving the car, right? You've all experienced that. Maybe you've been the backseat driver. But what we're talking about with this series and this idea of the car with the two steering wheels is saying who's really in charge. There's always times where we have character, character traits or desires or, or pieces of us that are in conflict with one another, like what, kind of what Alistair was just saying about sometimes there's something on the throne of our hearts that isn't actually what we want to be there. And last week, Vicky started things off by talking about gratitude and entitlement and how gratitude and entitlement are often competing for control. But the thing about gratitude and entitlement is I'm pretty sure we all would agree that moving towards gratitude is a better option than moving towards entitlement. It's kind of a clear cut and dried, which one do we want in the driver's seat? Well, we want gratitude instead of entitlement. But today we're talking about something that isn't quite as clear-cut as that one. We're talking about one that's a little more murky, a little more, takes a little more out of us to dive into and figure out together. And we're talking about one that isn't just a Christian problem. This is a human problem. And that's what we're doing with this whole series, is we're talking about things that are just part of our humanity. And then we're looking at what Scripture and what God has to say and how Jesus wants to be part of this with us. And so today we're talking about the concept of behavior. Now, human behavior is a ginormous realm, and we're not going to cover all of human behavior in 30 minutes on a Sunday. That's just not going to happen. But what we are going to do is we're going to narrow down our focus, and we're going to talk about one piece specifically. And that's the interaction and the relationship that our emotions have in shaping and kind of directing our behavior, our actions. Now, every one of us knows this about us, that our emotions shape our actions and shape our responses. And we're not talking about abolishing those. I'm going to get more about that in a second. And the other thing, when you hear that someone, you know, a pastor like me stand up in the church and talk about behavior, some of us have a memory of times when the church has tried to dictate or control or shape people's behavior. That's not what our goal is today. Our goal is not to control your actions, not to control your behavior, not to control your thoughts. In fact, all the church has really proven in that is that when we try to legislate morality, we fail. And there's a reason for that, because our laws, our legislature, the the pieces that we agree to as a society, are about forming the outer bounds of saying this is the boundaries of what it means to be part of our society, to be part of our community. Uh, That's what legislation does. But morality of saying, you know, we want to be transformed by Jesus, we want to be shaped by that, that's actually about something being drawn towards the center. And so you can't get people to, you know, even if the church was trying to say, and the church has tried to say, we want you to act a certain way. It doesn't work by building stronger fences around the outside. If we say that we're in the business of helping people change their lives, of transforming them, because that's what the church really is about, it needs to be about saying there's something in the center that draws us together, not about saying we're going to build stronger fences on the outside and try to herd people. That doesn't work. Shaping our behavior, shaping our actions, shaping our character only happens as a result of there being something stronger in the middle that we want to move towards. So that's going to be our, kind of our focus. There's, there's in, in a nutshell, that's kind of where we're going, that we're going to be talking about what's at the center of shaping our behavior and actions to be the way we want them to be. And so because of this, we're going to use these two steering wheels, these two kind of options to help us wrestle through and figure this out. And so one of them is, one of these steering wheels is slavery. Sometimes we are a slave to our emotions. Sometimes, because when we have a situation, having emotions is completely normal. Even if you don't control the situation you still control your own actions. This is part of what it means to be human and part of being in any sort of situation. Having an emotional response is normal. In fact, having emotions are inherently neutral. What we do with them sometimes isn't. And so we're going to be talking about this idea of our emotions being inherently neutral, but every time we're in a situation, let's say, you know, let's pick an easy one that we've probably all done that I know is not just me. You're driving down 18th Street and someone cuts you off. How many of you have a grace-filled, oh, I'm going to pray for that person. They're, they're having a really hard day. Kate, okay, we don't have that response. Let's be on, we can be honest here. This is a safe space to be vulnerable. What is more likely our response? We wave with less than five fingers? You know, we, we, we oftentimes, you know, if someone cuts us off, we think, oh, man, they're an awesome, awful person. Why would they ever do that? And we don't realize the fact that we just cut someone off a block ago because we forgot to shoulder check. See, when we're in a situation, someone cuts you off, there's an emotional response that rises. That's normal. But what we do with it matters. Because if we're a slave to our emotions, we jump straight from, here's the emotion, here's the response. We just are controlled by it. But there's something we can do, and this is what we're focusing on. We can actually stop that process. We can arrest it. We can interrupt it and say, how really do we want to act? How really do we want to respond when someone cuts us off? Or, you know, and that's a frivolous example. We can all think about more kind of deeper examples than that. But here's where I want to start with before we come back to this concept of slavery. Our emotions are neutral. It's what we do with them. It's not wrong to have an emotional response. That's what I'm going to get to. And we say Ephesians 4, 26. This is Paul's instructions to the Ephesian church in part of this chapter where he's talking about how do you live in community with one another he says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. See, he doesn't say, don't sin by being angry. He says, don't sin by letting anger control you. When we let an emotional response control our actions, that's when we've crossed the line. That's when we take, uh, are allowing it to do something more in us than what we want it to do. In fact, it's, it's essentially, it's acting without thinking when we let our emotions take control of us. This is what, what Paul says in Ephesians 4. And you might be thinking, well, should we ever be angry? And what's interesting is in the Greek, there's actually two different words for anger that get used. Well, so when Jesus was teaching and when Paul was writing, they had two words at their disposal to talk about emotions of anger. They had one that was like a... Short-term frustration. So if you stub your toe on the coffee table, which we've all done, and you're angry at an inanimate piece of furniture, are you, like, seething with rage and you hate that thing? No, hopefully not. But if you have this, like, moment of, like, frustration of, like, ah, it's stupid coffee table, I did it again, really we're angry at ourselves because we kicked it. Like, that's really what it is. But these, like, brief moments of frustration, that's, the, the Greeks actually had a different word that they could use when they're talking about that. But there's a different form of anger that is when we talk about it becoming rooted, when it becomes almost more like wrath, when it's like imprinted in our hearts and it enrages us. And that's the form that Jesus used in Matthew 5, when he says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, part of this teaching early on in his ministry. And he's saying, if you are angry with someone to the point where it is a festering wound in your heart, you've crossed a line. And in fact, as you go through, you see that what Jesus is really pushing at is saying that we need to act with love towards one another. But he's saying at this start, you know, people would say, well, as long as I didn't murder someone, I'm still okay. I can be angry at them as long as I don't act on it. And Jesus is saying, no, when we let an emotion take root in our hearts, when it controls and it shapes us that's what we're crossing a line and that's when we have become this slave to emotion where we go straight from an emotional response to a behavior when something like that takes root in our heart in our in our hearts and so sometimes people when we come to this topic of emotions and behaviors we think isn't there a third option can't we just like suppress our emotions Can't we just bottle them up and never feel them and push them away and never act on them? Wouldn't that be better for us as people in society? But the truth is that suppressing our emotions denies our humanity and how God created us. One of the things that I really quite enjoy, if if, if I get to pick the movie we're watching, I really like sci-fi movies. I really like science fiction. And there's a reason for it. It's not just that spaceships and lasers are cool, which they are. It's science fiction has this unique genre ability where we can create a complex question or a complex world and say we want to wrestle with this topic through the medium of science fiction. And, and science fiction tends to go that way. And I really like, like a really like, thought-provoking, like, challenging situation where characters get put in a complex situation. They have to figure out what are they going to do. And there's a movie that came out in 2002, I know it's kind of old, and it it didn't get a wide release, and most people didn't know it existed, called Equilibrium. And this movie is set in the future, it's set after World War III happened. And the beginning of the movie starts with this kind of narrative of saying that after World War III, humanity realized that if there was another war, our capacity to eradicate life is too great. We cannot afford the cost of another war. And so the response in this movie that humanity came up with was to create a drug that suppressed all emotions. And every civilian, every person had to take a daily dose of this drug and they would have no emotions at all. And this was the way of safeguarding humanity. But... There's a cost that comes with that. And and in the movie, there's this rebel faction. There's these people living outside the walls of the cities that are trying to protect art and music and culture from being destroyed by the government of saying, you know, no, we want to hold on to these things that make us feel. Isn't it better to have emotions? And the whole conflict of the movie is based around this one officer who decides to stop taking this drug that suppresses his emotion. And the whole moral of this, of this movie, and yes, it's action-packed and it's fun and I kind of liked it, but the whole moral was saying that if we want peace at the cost of having emotions, if we want peace at the cost of feeling, if we want peace at the cost of what makes us human, it's not worth it. And so the whole movie becomes how do we wake people up to say that how we feel and how we respond actually matters, that this is important see suppressing our emotions doesn't get us very far in fact it it makes us less than what god created us to be and on the second part it actually if we suppress them eventually we can't suppress them anymore and you've all been in that situation or maybe you've experienced it where you know grief is a tif- is a difficult one unprocessed grief if we just let grief sit and we never actually process it, if we never actually engage with it, if we never actually ask the questions of, well, why do I feel this way? And recognize that grief usually comes because we cared, not because we didn't care. Grief can manifest itself in different ways, and, it, and we can start being irritable to the people around us, or we can start making choices that aren't choices we normally would make because we have this stockpile of emotion that we haven't learned to deal with, that we haven't learned to make peace with. See, suppressing just puts us in that sort of situation. So if suppression doesn't work, the the other form, form, the steering wheel, on the one side that I talked about was slavery. Of What does it mean to be a slave to our emotions when we let our emotions just directly control our behavior? And I want to give you an example of this. Now, back when Nikki was pregnant with Olivia, now, she gave me full permission to tell this story, so don't throw coffee cups at me or start sending me angry text messages already we got to see firsthand what it looks like when emotion leads straight to action constantly and repeatedly. And there was, you know, through the first part of Nikki's pregnancy, she had kind of awful morning sickness. And she reached this point where she was like, you know, actually, I, I'm good to eat. And, and she asked me one day, can you make steak? And I said, sure, I can make steak. Because she was in this point where she's like, I, I think I can eat meat again. I really want a nice steak. So I, that night, I cooked steak. Now, it was pre-charcoal enlightenment. So I cooked it on a skillet on the stove and, and did a nice decent steak. And I, Nikki was in the living room. I said, hey, supper's ready. I had steak. I had some sides on it. Set down our plates. And we sit down at the table to eat. And Nikki instantly starts crying. And like, not just like little cry, like like sweeping crying. And I'm sitting there like, I screwed up. What did I do wrong? Like, did you ask for chicken? Did you ask for something else? Like, did I, did I put it on the wrong side of the plate? Like, like, what did I do? What did I do? And finally, Nikki kind of composes herself a little bit, and, she, and it wasn't upset. She wasn't angry. In fact, it was this deep gratitude that she had asked for steak, and I made steak. And she was so overwhelmed with gratitude in that moment that she just had to cry. And, you know, we started to learn this was a normal part of it. And so I sat there and we, and we sat there and we ate our steaks and Nikki cried. And it was the really awkward dinner. <laughs> and I think Nikki only had like two bites and was like, yeah, that's enough steak. I'm done. So, hey, I got two steaks out of the deal. Uh, but that's what happens when we go straight from an emotion to an action. You know, that's a, a positive, it's a humorous example but all of us can think of times when we've gone from an emotion to an action in a way that harmed, in a way that concussed, in a way that maybe you spoke words that destroyed instead of building up. And that's why, that's why James says this in his letter to the church. He says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. See, this is what James is telling us. You actually have the ability to be slow to speak and slow to be action. What it requires is stopping in the middle of saying, I have this emotion. What am I going to do with it? It means we interrupt the process and we stop it to say, What am I going to do with this? See, in, in that humorous example, like, Nikki wasn't able to stop and do that, and that's why it was so out of character, because normally she's very good at that and very measured and, and very understandable. But when we get in this situation where we have become a slave to our emotions, our behaviors are just controlled by our feelings, and we don't actually get to choose how we want to behave or how we want to act. And so we've said that suppressing our emotions doesn't work, being a slave to our emotions doesn't work. So what's the third option? And I want to use a term here that, that I, I, I hope we'll, we'll be able to wrestle with a little bit. And I want to say it's not about controlling our emotions. It's actually about managing. And here's why. A good manager sets the outcomes and provides the team with tools and resources to accomplish their mission. The first two jobs I worked at, I didn't have great managers, you know, they, would, they were good at assigning tasks, at saying, here, do this, here, do this. But I never really, it was hard to understand that what I was doing was part of the bigger picture. And then when I left that first career I had, and I had this kind of short-term stint where I was selling cell phones, you know, it was like, it was just a job because I was, I was done with architecture. I didn't want to go back into designing houses, so I was selling cell phones. And it was my first experience of having a really good manager, And I mean, we're selling cell phones. Like, it's not, like, uber critical. It's not, like, this crazy important role. It's, you know, this is still, like, in the generation of, like, the tail end of the flip phones. Like, it's so you can talk and you can text. You know, cell phones, you know, now are a lot more involved. But at the time, this guy, uh, his name was Travis. Somehow, I don't know how he learned this, but he just understood management from a different perspective. He understood that our, you know, yes, our goal was to sell products, to move a product, but he understood that the outcome more in that was actually customer satisfaction. And so he didn't actually care about sales numbers. He cared more about were our customers coming in with a problem and leaving with a solution. And he would drill that into us, and not through like formal staff meetings, but just like, you know, when, we, when there's no customers in there and we're just talking about, oh, you know, how do we do this better? He would just drill this in that we have a mission to, that when someone comes with a problem, they leave with a solution. That was our goal. And part of it, he also understood the need for training, and he understood how does he provide us with the tools and the resources to accomplish that mission. And for me, I think I was about 19 years old, this was really eye-opening to me, to see what it looked like when someone actually understood management from you know, this perspective of how do we have a set an outcome and how do we resource ourselves to be able to reach that outcome. And I didn't fully appreciate this until later on. Like, I didn't really clue into it until kind of near the end of my time when I was working there. I was reflecting one day at like, the managers I had previously that were really good at giving tasks, but weren't good at giving this outcome, weren't good at giving this bigger picture of mission. And that whole, that, that comparison has been something that's stuck with me my whole life, of saying, what does it mean to set an outcome and resource ourselves to be able to reach it? So when we talk about our emotions, how do our emotions shape our behavior? I think this phrase management really helps because it's about saying, what is the outcome What is the mission? What is the goal of who I want to be? Now, I I hope you agree with me on this, and maybe if you're just checking out faith, or maybe you just have questions, you might not agree with me on this yet, and that's okay. But I believe that at my very core, the depth of my personal mission in life should be to become as much like Jesus as I can that being transformed, that when I look at who Jesus is, I look at his character traits, I look at how he carried himself, how he handled himself, and I look at this amazing fact that because of what he did, we get to have a relationship with him now. He's not just a historical figure we get to look at. He's alive and in us now. When I look at that mission of saying, what does it mean to have a heart that is transformed to be like Jesus? That's the mission. That's my goal. I hope it's your goal too. And then if I have that, there's a question of saying, so how do I get the tools and the resources? How do I actually do the work of allowing myself to be transformed to become more like Jesus? That's why this term management helps. See, managing our emotions means that we actually pick a direction And we say, this is who I want to be. So when there's a situation that comes up, now we can't always control the situations, but remember, we can control our response to them. A situation comes up, we can control and say, how I act in this situation, I can act this way that will take me towards that mission, or I can let my emotions dictate, and I'm probably not going to act in the way that leads me towards my mission. See, stopping in the middle, and saying, what am I actually going to do in this moment, is extremely difficult. It's not easy. Because it requires something of us called self-awareness. It requires us to be aware enough of what we're feeling and what we're thinking and what's going on in the moment to almost be able to hit the pause button and say, how really do I want to act in this moment? Instead of letting us just automatically move through that process. See, as we have this self-awareness, there's the piece of saying, how do I get there from here? See, I recognize when I read scripture, when I look at who Jesus is, that there is a gap between who Jesus is and where I am. There's a gap that's there that I recognize that I want to close, and I want God to work in me, and I want the Holy Spirit to guide and shape me to close that gap as small as I can get it. I know I'll never actually close that gap, but I want to. So there's this question of saying, how do we get there? How do we do this work of transformation? How do we get there from where we are now? And I want to introduce another term for you and a definition that I'm going to work with, and it's called leadership. Leadership at its most basic level, I love this definition, taking people where they don't want to go. Because if they wanted to go there, they wouldn't need a leader, right? Right? Think about the Old Testament when Moses was called by God to lead the Israelites out of slavery and into a place literally called the Promised Land. Wouldn't you want to go to a place called the Promised Land? Like, come on, that's what it's been called. It's this promise that God has this land for your people that will be flowing with milk and honey. It'll be perfect. It's meant for you. Why wouldn't they want to go there? In fact, without Moses the Israelites would have turned around and gone back to Egypt and said, hey, can we be slaves again? See, Moses had this task of saying, how do you lead people? Even though he's leading them to something that's really good for them, Moses had the task of leading people where they don't want to go. And here's the thing, when we look at ourselves and we talk about self-awareness, we have to talk about this concept of self-leadership. Leading yourself is the hardest person you will ever have to lead. Because how do we lead ourselves to a place that will take hard work and to a place where, if we're honest, most of us don't want to go? Most of us don't want to do the hard work of transformation to shape our character, to work on, our, on who we are as a person, to get where we need to go. One author that I, I, read, I read a fair bit, and he's a pastor from a church in Ontario, says it this way, he says, Your competency will get you in the room, but your character will keep you there. Your competency will get you in the room. Your competency will get you that, you know, job you interview for, that promotion or whatever it is. But your character, who you are, is what will keep you there. Because we've all met people that are competent but don't have character. And none of us want to be that. If we want to work on our character, if we say there's a gap between me and this goal of who I want to be, we actually have to work on our character. And that's why behavior is actually as much a character issue as anything else because it's it's what reveals our character to each other. And so, how do we actually get there? See, our emotions have a superpower. They reveal the places in our hearts where we need God the most. Our emotions actually reveal these gaps between where we are and where we want to be. Last year, I opened up to you guys and I started talking to you about how for the previous year and a bit, I had been experiencing anxiety attacks on a regular basis. And I started to t- I talked with you guys because I knew it was time, and because of what God was doing in my heart, that it was time for me to share it. And it was time for me to talk about this issue. And, and I'm not going to go back through the whole history of what was leading to it, but as a basis, it was this collection of unprocessed trauma and unprocessed grief coupled with some external stresses and pressures that were on my life at the time, those things melded together in this perfect little storm and started to cause me to have anxiety attacks on a regular basis. And when one of these anxiety attacks would hit me, my entire emotional and my mental state would just drop to zero. And I would be completely unproductive no matter what I tried to do. It was like... It was as if there was like this heavy-weighted blanket on me and every movement just took so much more effort than it needed to. Even just getting up out of bed, even just, you know, coming to work, even just opening my Bible felt like I was lifting 50 pounds to just turn a page. See, my emotions in that moment were trying to point out to me that there was something that wasn't right. See, our emotions have this power to reveal where there are issues. And see, this is this whole piece of self-awareness and self-leadership. When we learn what those pieces are, then we can deal with them. And so for me, what it took was it took me spending uh, about a year in counseling. Uh, And I found a a really great Christian counselor, Um, nothing against secular counselors, but I just believe that Christian counselors have a bigger and a deeper toolbox because of who Jesus is that Christian counselors are able to address and approach things in ways that secular counselors can't. Not that secular counselors are bad, just Christian counselors have a bigger toolbox. And for me, uh, I didn't need to take a medical approach, but for some of us, that's the reality. And in fact, talking to your medical doctor and talking to a Christian counselor and having them work together is probably the most effective. You know, Chances are, maybe it would have sped up my process if I had. This counselor that I was seeing started to help me work on the tools and the resources to recognize these anxiety attacks before they'd happen. And what he was teaching me was that for my specific case and for what was happening, that there was a brief moment where I could recognize that something in my emotions was off, something in my emotional internal state was off. And there was a window where I could interrupt the process and just getting me to recognize that this isn't something that just the moment i feel overwhelmed that this is going to happen and it's going to throw me in a tailspin for a couple of days it was recognizing there is a window there's a t- chunk of time where i could cut it off and once i recognized that then he was able to start laying the groundwork for saying okay how do we get to the root issue see i wasn't fully able to admit what was actually at the heart of the issue and it took A lot of times, sitting in a chair, in a very, you know, counseling conversations are not easy. They're not pleasant. You know, the first time I saw him, I basically just cried for an hour. It was not fun. But as he was helping me figure out how to stop this cycle, how to, and then what happened is, once I was able to stop the cycle, I was able to start seeing what was causing that, what was underneath it. What was the brokenness inside of me? that needed to be healed. And so the counsel that I was seeing laid all this groundwork for something really cool and really amazing to happen. Because once I was in that place where I was able to recognize I had enough self-awareness to see my brokenness, I was finally able to let Jesus do what he always wanted to do. See, God doesn't want us to be broken. But when we are broken, we can open ourselves up to God in ways that we can't when we're feeling healthy or even when we're feeling kind of wounded. In that brokenness, Jesus was able to meet with me and start revealing that underneath this wound was a lie. Underneath this wound was an issue that was unresolved from a long time ago that needed to be dealt with. And how it needed to be dealt with was for me to let Jesus in, to let Jesus take that moment and reshape it for me, and be able to show me what was really happening, that my perception of that instant was flawed. I didn't know, in the moment of that instant, I didn't know that God was there, but he was. I couldn't recognize that God was walking beside me because I was so clouded by this wound to see that God was actually right there, And this is the promise of Psalm 34, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. This is an ongoing theme throughout Scripture, that God is close to us when we are wounded, when we are hurt. And so if we want to manage our emotions, if we want our character to grow, there is a level of saying we have to start letting Jesus in to these moments where our character flaws come out. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. We're not going to do our regular conversation piece because I think this is what we need to do. Uh, and I want to invite you, if you've um, you got a Connect card with you, there's a blank spot, and I want you to, to, to maybe, sometimes it helps to journal and to write down your thoughts. If that's something that helps you, you can write on it. Don't turn it in, just keep it, or pull out your phone and go to the notepad and write a note for yourself. But here's the, the first thing I want to invite you to do, and this might be a little difficult, but I, we know that God wants to heal us. We know that God wants to walk beside us and help us in these moments. So our our first step, I want you to take a moment and think about a time that revealed your own brokenness or your own character flaws. Maybe this isn't a pleasant thing to think about, but take a moment and think of a time. When did one of my character flaws come out that I wish I didn't have? Maybe it was even something in the last week or so. Are you able to find one? Are you able to think of one? Now I want you to just take that instance, that circumstance that was around it. I want you to think for a moment, what was your emotional state leading up to that moment? What were you feeling? What was your heart and your mind trying to tell you about that situation that was difficult to see? What was in that moment that caused you to act? Maybe you... uh, Maybe you said words that that tore someone down when you didn't mean to. Or maybe you acted in a way that hurt someone. Or maybe it was a situation where you just needed to show grace to someone, but instead you were flippant in dismissal. We all have these character flaws, but it's what what we do with them matters. And so think about what was your emotional state leading up to that. Now, this is the crucial one. Are you willing to hand that situation and hand that character flaw over to God? This was the toughest part for me was to take this wound that had become part of my, my identity and be willing to say, okay, God, you can take it. Are you actually willing to let go of this moment that revealed your character flaw? Are you willing to let go of it and hand it over to God? And if you are, I want to ask you to do something really simple. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and pray with me. I'm not going to ask you to throw, put your hands up. I'm not going to ask you to identify in any way. Just pray. Jesus, we know that we have character flaws. And we have this this moment that we're thinking of right now where we acted in a way that was not how we want to act. It was not in a way that leads us closer to you. But Jesus, would you help us to hold it with open hands? And would you take it from us? This moment, this wound, this, this piece of ourselves that hinders our ability to walk closer to you. Jesus, would you take it? Jesus, we confess the times that we have let fear and our desire for control to take over. When we have held tightly and we've made peace with this wound or this experience. And we made a deal with it and let it shape us. But God, we know that you're bigger than that. We know that your love is greater than that. We know that your mercy is more than that. And so, Jesus, this morning, we take this peace and we give it to you. We ask that you take it from us. And, Jesus, would you replace it with your love? Would you replace it with revealing to us how close to us you wish to be, how deep the relationship is that you long to have for with us? And Lord, would you guide us and protect us? That when we find ourselves in a similar situation again, would you help us recognize that you are with us? In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's still another piece to it. Next time you find yourself in that situation, where this character flaw or this trait comes out that makes us want to act in ways that aren't who we want to be, that aren't ways that lead us closer to God, are you willing to choose a different response? Are you willing to choose a different response when someone cuts you off in traffic? Are you willing to choose a different response when someone says something that maybe they didn't even mean to hurt you, but it offends you? Are you willing to take a different response? I want to close with this passage of Scripture from Galatians 5. Paul is writing to the church of Galatians, and he's talking about what the Holy Spirit produces in us. He says this, you know, a lot of us know this. Some of us know it's set to a song that we were taught as kids. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit, this kind of outcomes in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. See, when I look at that, back at that situation, When I look at the way that I had made peace with it, I made peace with it not in a peaceful way. I made peace with it saying I'm not going to deal with it. And it took until my emotions were so out of whack, when they were so unhinged that I finally realized something needed to be done. And then now on the other side of it, it's been two years since I've had an anxiety attack. And it's something I'm still aware of. I've had moments when I've been close. But I have the tools and the resources now and I have the foundation of knowing that Jesus has taken that peace away. That they don't happen. That they can be stopped. And so that's my prayer for you. That in whatever peace, as we talk about this this topic of of emotions and behaviors, that you'd be able to find that peace of Christ working in your lives, transforming and shaping you so that you can choose to live in this way that we as a community of faith can live out genuine love joy peace because that's the mark of what it means to walk with jesus let me pray for you and then we'll wrap up god thank you for this time thank you that we get to gather together and god thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted that you walk with us and that it's your desire to heal us and draw us closer to you. That that gap between us and who you are that we long to close, you've sent your Holy Spirit to guide us in that. And so Lord, this morning, would you not let this end here when we walk out of this room, but would you walk with us and make us aware that you are walking with us in the coming days and weeks and months. And would you lead us into that place of reaching those deeper heart parts of our heart that you still want to heal so that we don't have to suppress our emotions, we don't have to be a slave to them, but they can be part of what draw us deeper together in community with one another and with you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, next week we are continuing with Who's in Charge and we're tackling another one. I want to invite you, um, just one last little reminder, if you've got a place to stick up a poster for our Budget Breakers Workshop, grab a poster from the Connect Center. And if you're interested in Next, if you're interested in knowing what's the next step to grow in your walk with God, sign up for Next. Just check it off on the card and drop it off in one of the boxes or drop it off at the Connect Center. Folks, I hope you have a great week. We'll see you Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11am. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.